Digital Drift episode 27, recorded Wednesday the 23rd of July 2014, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. After a very strong box office success for their reboot, Fox realised they had Ape hit on their hands and greenlit a sequel immediately. Director Rupert Wyatt was replaced by Matt Reeves and writers Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver worked with a new edition of Mark Bomback. Jaffa and Silver both co-produced as well, along with Peter Chernin and Dylan Clark, so this really does retain the feel of a consistent creative team. A third movie, most likely entitled War of the Planet of the Apes, is inbound and due in 2016. Three years on from 2011's rise and Caesar returns with his family, though ten years have elapsed in the movie world, it is a very different planet we rejoin. After the pandemic spread, mankind was divided into pockets, unable to connect or communicate with one another, scrabbling desperately to keep their families alive in a hostile world. The apes, however, have gone back to nature, adapting perfectly to their forest surroundings and taking on the trappings of primitive man. Their secrecy, hidden in the woods near San Francisco, and the panic about everything else is what has kept them alive all this time. But now the humans are at their gates. They want access to their old electrical power, and their discovery of the Simeon tribe creates unbearable hostility and tension as bitterness paranoia and hatred on both sides fuels the fires of war 
Can Caesar keep the peace between man and human, or will violence prevail, precipitating more drastic change? Cloverfield, Let Me In, and Under Siege to Colon Dark Territory director Matt Reeves said, When I came in, late 2012, after Rupert Wyatt left as he felt two years wasn't enough time to make a great movie, Franco and Pinto were not rehired as a result. The movie that they were going to do was quite different from the movie we ended up doing. Well, the original thing, they gave me an outline that they had put together. Mark Bomback, Die Hard 4, Total Recall, The Wolverine, Fifty Shades of Grey, who ah. wrote, yeah, who wrote the script. They were going to have him write this outline. And this outline started in the post-apocalyptic San Francisco, and the apes came down into the city and started pushing up power lines, and they started living together, both species, in the city. And the ape could really speak very articulately, and it was entirely different. And it wasn't even a story. And I said, guys, do you realize the miracle that you guys pulled off with Rise? It's a movie in which the secret is that it's not a human point of view story at all. That movie is Caesar's. That's amazing. Now, Reeves insisted that Bombac took another pass at it, and eventually they came around to something that seems like it was intended from the very beginning, to be a second pass at the previously botched premise of Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Now, this time, it was made with an understanding of how people work, the immense difficulty of finding an accord with one's aggressors, extremely good actors, I might add, and a clearly anti-war stance, very unusual for a summer blockbuster, very Another way of looking at it is James Cameron's avatar in shades of grey rather than black and white. Um, just for you folks at home, we saw this on separate occasions. Uh, because uh, we are now in a different situation, uh, we can now go, we can walk to the cinema, uh, which means we don't have to pile into the car and go and see it all together on a Saturday or a Sunday and pay peak price. So we went on the, the Monday and the Tuesday where we paid uh, less uh, using our um, Odeon frequent flyer miles cards. Um, which meant that basically Sharon got to go to the cinema for the first time alone. What was that like? Um, it, it, I think it was the first time ever, but it was the first time in a very, very long time. Yeah. And it was an interesting experience. I was expecting. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. That was your descriptor. The no. first word you thought of. I am about to elaborate. She's, she's doing it in sign. I'm waiting for you to finish. <laughs> I was expecting to have difficulty engaging because when I'm surrounded by people, I kind of have an on guard mode, which prevents me from being able to get fully emotionally involved in something. It's mitigated slightly when I'm with you because I kind of tune in to whatever uh, emotional state you're in. And that kind of gives me a fixed point to focus on, which helps me to filter out everybody else. When you're not around and uh, Lyra's not around, it's very difficult for me to filter out everybody else. So I was a little bit wary because I know how much I was emotionally engaged with the first one and I was a bit worried that I would lose that by seeing it in a, a cinema full of strangers particularly if they ended up being a cinema full of chatty strangers yeah my uh, my lot were laughing uncomfortably at the fact that uh, the apes were a bit too human for them they were like oh, an ape on a horse how ruthlessly absurd <laughs> and uh, I, 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 yeah 
apes on horseback. You must, must surely know about these films. You would think. Well, I obviously got people. the I obviously got the better audience of the two. Yeah. Um, but if was... you remember when we saw Avatar, you had to go out and uh, and lean on a tree because you were kind of you know, very moved by the whole thing. And you know, some fuckers just wandered past you. You got to hug a tree. And that was Tunbridge Wells. Mm. Which that, is that's like what they sound like. Posh. Airlock. Um, she has to hug a tree. How very gauche. Indeed. Um, so. At the beginning of the, the film, everybody was kind of, I was like the first person into the cinema and everybody else was coming in in dribs and drabs and it was like the very last minute and people were still coming in and then there was the obligatory sort of sweet paper rustling and popcorn crunching and ice grazing around. I believe it's and, yeah. Um, but then, very, very quickly, everybody shut the fuck up and there was barely a peep out of anybody for the rest of the film. There, I mean, there was kind of shocked and and people who seemed to be genuinely into what was going on on the screen, but there was not a single inappropriate noise out of anybody throughout the whole thing. I think around about the time when Cobra shot those uh, uh, guys at the gun range, Everyone shut up because they were like, "Okay, it's on now," mm. uh, and they, 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 they felt the tension like animals do. Yeah, but I think you you were spot on about you. You said to me beforehand that it was immensely tense, and it was, and I could feel it the whole way through. And I actually ended up a lot more engaged than I had even hoped that I would be. It starts with the global meltdown and sort of uh, taking you through proceedings and, and how the world got to where it was. And uh, did you notice that the uh, one of the co-stars of Pacific Rim turned up? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone sniggered when Obama was on screen. Because like, <laughs> he's like the president and that. That's a good joke. It's, well, no, it's that. that's to make it feel more real, folks. Exact same shit happened in Pacific Rim. It was really good there. I, I was obviously totally on board because they told uh, they did such a good job of telling this story and sort of preparing you for it at the end of uh, the first film that it, it just everything felt like a very natural progression of that. They hadn't twisted things around. In fact, the way it's described before is an unnatural way for things to go. I went back and actually sat down and watched Battle for the Planet of the Apes um, and uh, the, the, the shitty fifth film, and I can I can pin it down to a couple of things. Things that, that are really feel wrong about that, and, and some of the problems actually start in conquest. Um, it it's seventeen years after the talking apes um, come back in time. At seventeen years worth of humans being, uh, I think if you remember the chronology is cats and dogs die, and apes um, are taken in as house pets, and then they are bred bigger and bigger. But a chimpanzee's generation is only eight is eight years, so that can only happen twice. And suddenly, they're human-sized uh, apes walking around, and that is actually a thinly veiled reference to the, uh, I suppose it can really be called eugenics involved in the slave trade in uh, America, and um, the the specific picking of overly large overly athletic uh, slaves and breeding them together to create more strong offspring to work the fields. Uh, so, yeah, for the purposes of that, they, they were again working backwards and going, well, how could we get big apes? But they rushed it. They went too hard and too fast just so they could keep Caesar in there. 
And the original story from the sounds of it, if they were going to be walking around and talking and being way too human, wrong, totally wrong, too fast. This actually is about as close as you could possibly get to if intelligent apes really did take over the planet, how could it happen? Where it falls down in this case and in the case of battle it's too small scale. It's not a planet of the apes. It's a land of the apes. It's a city of the apes. It's a forest of the apes. There is no indication that this is happening anywhere else on the planet. And that's not necessarily something that won't be revealed later on. And also, it's not necessarily a failing, because we care about these apes. And that's one of the, 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 the core victories of, um, of this film. We care about the humans and the apes. We don't want anyone to get hurt. This is what I was trying for with the cartographer's handbook. And what I will continue trying for with New Century. A, a war where on both sides there are extreme hostilities and you don't want a single shot to go off. An anti-action movie. That's an achievement. See, that's kind of counter to something that I I get a little bit frustrated by when I hear sometimes, which is when people look at a, a situation where there are hostilities and fall back into, well, there's six of one and half a dozen of the other. There's faults on both sides. Yeah, so but, like with Pocahontas. But a lot of the time... We're not talking two huge armies with equally matched technology, are we? We're talking... The oppressors and the oppressed. Yeah. And I think the fact that in this it it is small scale, that actually really appealed to me because it it is two groups which are more evenly matched in the sense that although the humans have guns and therefore... Technologically speaking, they, they wildly outmatch the apes. The apes should not stand a chance against them. But the apes seem to have a focus and a persistence that the humans utterly lack. They are wandering around like panicky children. You say that the, the humans are technologically advanced. They're technologically dependent. The apes don't need all yes. of these things the humans need. Yeah, although it did make me smile when the chap said that they had the apes had an advantage because they didn't need power and this and that and i'm sat there thinking well technically speaking neither do you mm. they don't really have anything that you any um uh needs to be met or you don't have any needs to be met that they don't you need food you need shelter you have fire they have fire but you're kind of fixated on the idea that you need lights and power and they just haven't got used to that yet. Yeah. There's very much a, uh, and this is a, a lot of post-civilization movies are about this and ultimately the, um, the new century deals with this as well. The, the idea of restarting civilization, um, if not necessarily to be what it was before, but to, um, to try to overcome the problems that, that, that you're facing to reach, to go back to normality rather than making this new world, world and the new adapting. Well, that making again that is normality. Yeah. Again, that's something that, that I'm always going to be, um, slightly 
off kilter with when a group of people are basically saying, right, the world has moved on, things have changed, we're now going to fight as hard as we can to try and reverse that and get things back to the way they were before. That's not your world anymore. This is your world now. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you're going to be able to move forward with it. And I'm, by the way, super to blame on this scenario as well. I am rubbish at adapting. If I get damp and go for four hours without my iPad, I go stir crazy. <laughs> so I, I'd be the first scrabbling at the doors going, give us power. We we, we need Wi-Fi. Heading down California way. Have they had some internet there? Uh, <laughs> so during the elk hunt at the beginning, I was bowled over by the choice of music. Michael Giacchino, uh, he of Star Trek and The Incredibles. And he replaces Patrick Doyle, who worked on Rise, and it's a different score and a different tone. But the music during the Elk Hunt, it's Luxa Turner, or it's paying homage to Luxa Turner from 2001 A Space Odyssey. So in the first few moments, after you've got had your global pandemic handled exceptionally well and very uh, subtly and without hammering it uh, in, in with a ballpoint pen into everyone's eye, like uh, Zack Snyder does with uh, the also extremely fun Dawn of the Dead, uh, you know, Civilization's Crumbling opening sequence with Johnny Cash, you, you get a reference to 2001, Kubrick. It legitimizes and strengthens the story. Says, "Okay, we're going to be playing here seriously. This is this is not just uh, messing around, and it's not a uh, it's, it's not a high octane you know, metal spinning blockbuster of the kind you're used to, uh, or even um, what was that 10,000 BC, the one by Roland Emmerich? I suppose that'd be one of the closest ones, um, or even Avatar, really." Avatar as well the other day on the same day just to, uh, as in following this just to sort of reacquaint myself because there are a lot of similarities and, and just the, the 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 glorious action in Avatar and the sort of, you know, the the, uh, the, the vengeful natives striking back against the uh, evil oppressing humans it's a completely different tone to this. We, we, we paid attention during film class uh, and then Michael Giacchino goes and uh, makes something like 19 monkey puns in his soundtrack. Every single one of these tracks... Well, Level Plaguing Field, that's the pandemic that kills the Earth. <laughs> Look who's stalking. The Great Ape Processional, past their primates, close encounters of the third kind. It's like a Jack and Daxter series of games. Monkey, monkey to the city, the lost... Sim- the Lost City of Chimpanzee, along simian lines, Caesar no evil, hear no evil, Monkey See, Monkey Coup, one of my favourites, Gorilla Warfare, hmm, easy, The Apes of Wrath, which by the way was a Garth Marenghi uh, Dark Place episode name, Gibbon Take, I'm serious folks, that's track 13, Aped Crusaders, How Bonobo Can You Go, which must surely be uh, to do with Cobra, 
Enough monkeying around. Primates for life. Planet of the end credits, and ain't that a stinger? So yeah, it's it's a deadly serious film with a completely flippant soundtrack. Obviously, it's, it's not, he had to let off steam somewhere. It's not absolutely deadly serious. There are great moments of levity in it that sort of put the audience at ease, and uh, and and human moments. Again, I'm misusing that word, and it's actually one of the main themes of it, and it's what I mentioned before. Uh, what we've been talking about the uh, notion that. What we refer to as humanity, the apes were looking for in each other as well, and it is not exclusive to either humanity or apes. It comes down to a decency. So really, when uh, uh, Caesar stated, ape does not kill ape, what he really means is decent people do not kill decent people. And it it took him to the end of this film to really understand that. So the bear comes out of nowhere, shocked the hell out of Lyra, who was watching it with us, and uh, just like when we were watching Brave, about 80% more bear than I expected. (laughs) Just this terrifying bear. Uh, This was actually filmed in the woods of British Columbia, by the way. Again, that's an issue I have. Who lives in San Francisco, folks? If you could tell us what these woods are like, because when we saw them in the the original, they looked like the woods in Endor, and now suddenly they look like the Pacific Northwest country. It's like the whole thing's filmed in Oregon. I mean, I know it's foggy in San Francisco, but it just looks... It's very dank and dingy and wet, and it's almost like the, the virus got all the way to the sun and made it weaker. There's no blue skies. There's no golden sunlight anymore. Given that the um, uh, there was a mention very early on when they were talking about the virus that some of the symptoms exhibited by the infected apes, which we know not to be the truth, but this would have been what got out, uh, that they exhibited aggressive and um, uh, violent and threatening behaviour. Rage infected? It is a bit 28 days later. It is a little bit 28 days later, yes. Yeah. But what you were saying about the, you know, what was going on elsewhere around the world, ultimately, unless it's too soon after the fact for this to really be anywhere else, unless other labs were experimenting with similar um, uh, enhancing viruses. Oh, God, no, hang on a minute. I've just thought how it could have spread. If... The virus itself um, does to apes if it's just caught as a virus rather than actually being um, administered via a gas or um, or injected. Then, if the humans who became infected and subsequently died somehow managed to pass it on to other apes in other countries, then they could get smarter instead of healing over and dying i suppose yeah if it went to uh a- africa where the um i suppose yeah well the indigenous populations of apes are um, yeah and, and once it's into the, the various population zoos. yeah this goes on long enough that uh people would still be taking those apes away and taking them to other parts of the world but again the generational thing the, it takes a long time for apes to uh to to multiply and multiply it will require uh, uh, uh <sighs> It's such a delicate situation, basically, because they require a, a, a huge abundance of food to go with this. They have a very specific, uh, very they're very picky about what they eat. Uh, these various different species around the planet, so they would require all of that food, all of that habitat, no humans around, and uh, I suppose the climate not to change too much, 
for several thousand years. The hunting makes a significant impact, though. And, yeah, and do, point, yeah, they're eating do meat bear now. in mind that it takes... That's picky now. Yeah, well, it takes the virus to make uh, a level of intelligence that Bright Eyes had. Yeah. It only takes one generation to then create Caesar. True. So, in theory, all of those apes who'd, who were intelligent through the uh, exposure to the virus, all of their children to some degree, to uh, a greater or lesser extent, would have the same opportunity for increased intelligence as Caesar did. If you add to that the fact that they are now hunting, which means that they are now um, consuming large quantities of protein, which apes in the wild don't do, um, that they are uh, taking on calorie loads, which apes in the wild have to pretty much eat for the vast majority of their day in order to maintain enough calories to sustain their size, particularly um, gorillas and orangutans. Um, you add meat into that and they had fire. I'm willing to bet they were eating cooked meat. That's part of what, and we, we spoke about this briefly before, that's part of what kind of kaboomed humans up into the yeah. human realms was a, a change in diet that meant that they were getting uh, uh, chemicals they were ingesting chemicals that they never had before um, and they were not having to spend so much of their day in simple pursuit of food which meant that they had time to pursue other things and it's not just the uh, the chemical building blocks that allows for increased intelligence it's neuron use as we said about caesar growing up in a household and being exposed to the kind of stimulation that a human child would be even a, a regular chimp would have the opportunity to increase their intelligence based on that if you know the contrary to spending most of their day interacting with trees and tires on swings yeah which leads us to the teaching and the writing, and uh, they're actually they've, they've got set up rudimentary ape schools when you get back to their camp, and uh, the speaking, the combination of sign with a little bit of speech is is very significant to this movie because it makes you pay attention to what's being done and said. It means that the bulk of the true communications going on in the movie that you're riveted by is being signed. And you're reading the uh, the credits, but it's all about um, body language. And so you're reading the characters more than you would actors coming on and delivering lines written by Aaron Kruger. It also means that because you know they can speak, but they don't do it very often, it means that every word they say, you know, is important. Yeah. There is not. I mean, this is I said to you when I got back there isn't a word or a gesture or a shot or a frame in that film that doesn't mean something. Yeah. Nothing is wasted. And compare that to uh, some of the things that we've been exposed to more recently. Transformers 4, Age of Extinction. Four hours which are and a million years to finish. Hours of bollocks. Hours, hours of, of bollocks. nothing. Hours of bollocks. Okay, folks, somebody make a meme of that just with uh, Optimus Prime. Hours of bollocks. Optimus Prime riding a dinosaur. Hours of bollocks, then this, then credits. 
You'll be pleased to know, Sharon, by the way, that Andy Serkis got payday. And this is a, quote, healthy seven-figure deal to reappear a season. Now, this is a big deal because he's a voiceover actor, technically, in the eyes of the Academy. He's a major, major force now. Uh, this is not chump. This is not chimp change. <laughs> That's between one and nine million dollars. They're not just treating him like uh, the guys in the makeup being pushed around. This is this is based on his performance, and this is based on the fact that people will come back to see that performance. This is a big deal, and and that I think the the monkey lord that uh, circus is around powering forwards with. Uh, performance capture because this style more than uh any others interests me because it's pushing the envelope it's pushing um the uncanny valley it's not the same by the way as sticking a man's face on a baby's body to make it to to make it seem like a young charles xavier No, indeed not. <laughs> or, or a, a, a seven-year-old child's face on a baby's body to make it seem like a freaky weird vampire baby that that's the opposite that is forcing computer graphics on onto something that really doesn't need it and that actually would feel much more natural without it this performance capture is a way of making computer graphics as natural as they can be and it's pushing that uncanny valley up as fast as far as it'll go there were points actually while i was watching this specifically where caesar was sort of in a mid shot and was not massively angry, but just was sort of standing there, thinking hard, arms down like thus. And I think that's actually, that's not performance capture anymore. That's Andy Serkis in an ape suit. <laughs> because it really did seem like there was, there was no veil between us anymore. Mm. That was wonderful. You know the scary thing about them? They don't need power. Lights. Heat. Nothing. Hey, pal. That's the advantage. That's what makes them stronger. Malcolm, I'm thinking one of us should stand guard tonight. Wait, what? They took our guns. If one of us dead, we'd be dead already. Maybe they're just taking their time. They already killed off half the planet already. Come on. What? You can't honestly blame the apes. Who the hell else am I going to blame? It was a simian flu. It was a virus created by scientists in a lab. The chimps they were testing on didn't really have a say in the matter. Spare me the hippy-dippy pool. You're telling me you don't get sick to your stomach at the side of them? Huh? So when they meet the humans and there's the, the shooting, this is the beginning of the no, don't do anything. No, don't do anything. For the love of God, I know you're going to do something, but please don't do it. Um, and that sustains from pretty much the whole movie. I suppose it makes Caesar's cause our cause because it presents us with a situation where we can see there can be no winner. And yet it doesn't present the aggressors, namely Coba and what's the guy named Carver. Carver. So close. Uh, and, uh, uh, technically, um, Dreyfus, uh, Gary Oldman as well. It's an aggressor. Uh, it doesn't present them as, uh, being, one-dimensional villains. There are times, uh, specifically for the end, uh, for Cobra, where he became mad with power, that it's that the shades of grey start to go a lot darker. But for a long time throughout the film, and including uh, the whole time for uh, Oldman's character, very much shades of grey, very much uh, presenting you with uh, 
characters with lives, with motivations, with pasts, with histories, who believe they're doing the right thing, who are motivated by uh, fear and hate and paranoia, but real organic versions of them rather than uh, cheap imitation pasted on ones. Guy playing Carver, slightly less so. He seems to be sort of painted as a redneck in that kind of... Um, in the same way that uh, the, the wicked colonel in uh, Avatar just seemed to be just the worst of what America has to bring to us. See, I saw him as much less so. Um, I mean, the fact that he was he was the engineer, he was the one who knew how the dam worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you already know that he is a smart and educated man. Mm-hmm. However, he also seemed terrified the whole way through, and he seemed to be affected by i mean maybe it's what we said about technological dependence if the world moves on from being technologically dependent where does that leave the mechanics where does that leave the engineers where does that leave the people who are um uh, educated in the ways of and whose life is kind of dedicated to the repair and maintenance of things that humans just aren't using anymore so if you're in that position, you've kind of got a choice of do you use those talents to adapt to other things? Because if you're an engineer, you can create new stuff too. Um, or do you look back and get panicky? And, and um, I, I think when it came down to it, the division, you, you said about the, uh, the idea of it being a divide between decent and not decent. I, I wouldn't frame it quite that way personally. I th- yeah, I you're think right, because Dreyfus mo- most definitely could not be considered indecent. Not a decent a man, no, absolutely. But I would say that there was there was a division and a very definite one between, and I'm going to use the term people to incorporate everybody, including the apes, mm-hmm. but there was a division between people who looked forwards and saw future and saw consequences and tried to do what they could to mitigate those consequences and to make those uh, the future outcomes less harmful and uh, something that would uh, be positive and uh, not cause people to die and people who not even necessarily looked backwards but just didn't look forwards quite so much people who would allow impulse to make them act on their emotions and their gut responses without really thinking through what the end result of that would be and they did that for various different reasons you know and all of their uh, emotional reactions and their uh, what was driving them seemed perfectly understandable it it was just I, I recognized the uh, the frustration in seeing them escalate things so quickly out of maybe fear of not acting in time. We talked about this before on the uh, the X-Men podcasts, the, the difference between uh, Magneto and Charles. One of the, Eric and Charles, sorry, one of the, the distinctions between them being that Charles would talk and think and work through everything that, that was going on and, and where everything was likely to go and end up running the risk of not acting at all. Whereas Eric was, uh, more act now, sort out the mess later. Um, and that's an oversimplification in their case. But I think that that was something that started to come through with Caesar. And, and I can see this ending up being cause for him to query his uh, his 
ability to lead, particularly as he gets older, that he is a thinker. He plans. He feels things very, very deeply. And it, it hurts him so much when others are harmed that he will avoid taking action if it means that that harm can be avoided, even if that ends up meaning that other harm is done from a different direction. Does that make sense? It does. I was looking for a uh, relationship of Charles and Eric proportions between uh, Caesar and Coba because there there are obviously a lot of similarities there. The the harm that has been vested on Coba brilliantly exemplified when uh, Caesar mentions human work and Coba points to his various scars and coldly intones human work, human work, points to his ruined eye, human work. This is someone who has been treated like a concentration camp victim. And um, I think I was hoping for more uh, uncertainty in Koba. Maybe uh, more... Uh, maybe that he would do what it took to punish and to uh, attack the humans, but he would never actively attack and shoot and, and hurt or attempt to kill... Caesar, and that went completely out of the window when he decided. Yeah, he he basically when when Caesar beat him to the ground, and then he got up and uh, and swore fealty and um, extended his hand for supplication. At that point, already he decided, nah, "This is I'm done here. I am going to get you in a different way." Obviously, brute strength is not going to work here. And from then on, he was scheming and plotting, and there was nothing more of what we could refer to as humanity in him. He was just acting on out of vengeance on everyone and became Megatron-like levels of megalomaniacal and um, murderous by the end, which I guess was disappointing because I wanted that dimension of just a, uh, just a moment for Cobra of going, what have I done here? Even if he just carried on, uh, you know, moving on, but just like to, to stare at the, all the other apes being killed and, and, and thinking to himself, they're doing this for me. Uh, or are they and just just rationalize it in some way and then snap himself out of it just um but he was played by toby kebble this time it was uh, it was a champion christopher gordon the first time and it's an astonishing performance so w whether or not cobra went in the direct you know w you know went directly towards the black or not um it, it's all pretty much uh level with circus at times just in, in being able to express himself physically through the technology, through the, uh, the, the guise of the ape. Um, he gave Koba uh, a, a black burning soul. I think you can see as well how... Um because uh, unlike the others, uh, or some of the others who act very much on impulse, and the bulk of those being humans, actually, because you know Cobra's history, because you know what's driving him, it's not purely gut natural instinct, because his instincts have been twisted and moulded into something so jagged and so brittle that his actions kind of compounded onto each other. So everything he did that initially may have been completely understandable, and though you may not necessarily have agreed with his methods, you thought, well, yeah, I can kind of see what that's born out of. And to an extent, he's 
he's right to be wary. But then the more and more he layered um, action, which was entirely without uh, real justification. I mean, for me, the the turning point was when he killed Ash. Well, yeah, he, it was he was demanding that his apes murder uh, unarmed humans, and that that already that's a turning point. And then he he push that over the edge literally uh, by turning that into anybody who refuses to uh, do my bidding here suddenly he becomes megatron mm. will suffer the same consequences but i think because because i think a lot of then people there's no, say almost no going back yeah a lot of people would say that the turning point was when he shot caesar yeah but that i could kind of see the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that he was trying to assemble at that stage he uh, he wanted to initiate something that would cause the humans to, to no longer be allowed to interact with the apes. Hmm. In the same way that Eric could close himself off to kill Mystique uh, in order to, what, to do what he perceived as the greater good. Yeah, but once that was done and he received no punishment for it, at least not immediately... Hmm. I think that's what then caused him to completely go over the edge into what could be interpreted as kind of comic book villain black. But I, I don't think that I would even, I would still even put it in that category because the, the whole point of those ridiculously, um, one dimensional villains is that you don't know any of their motivations yeah. at all. You know where Cobras come from and that makes all the difference. At least to me. It was uh, almost directly in in parallel with the time when he picked up the gun for the first time. Suddenly, when he's got the gun, that starts sending him down a darker and darker path because it becomes so easy to end a life. Yeah. Well, it's. I think that, it, again, it's very easy to see how that is somebody who's felt that all their power has been taken away from them in their yeah. life, that everything that they are has been stripped from them. They've been treated like an object, like a thing with no concept of their their personhood or their, uh, their right to not be injured or their right to not be starved or their right not to have bits cut off them in the name of medical testing. Mm. And... Being given the uh, the formula that increased his intelligence was Cobra's first taste of power, and the uh, the look on Jacob's face, first of all, when he realised that uh, that it worked, um, when um, Cobra wrote his name, yeah, and secondly, when he was in the helicopter and Cobra pushed him off the side, yeah, tastes of power that pushed him further and further on to try and reclaim that and again like Eric to draw a line in the sand and say this will never happen to me again he he's not in a, in a place where he can think of it in terms of the world has moved on medical testing labs no longer really exist that is never going to happen to me again it can't it can't possibly he can't think that way all he thinks is humans this is what they've done to me Shred. It is to the credit of the uh, writers of the two X-Men, uh, young Eric and Charles films, that they managed to keep Eric so multidimensional. They haven't sent him down that path, you know, that he can't come back from, that he's no longer relatable anymore. Um, 
even though we would still have an understanding of where he is. Once you get to the point where Cobra got, it's very hard to root for him anymore. And that the magic of um, Fassbender's Magneto is that for most of the time, you're thinking, guy's got a point. But with Cobra, you're presented so repeatedly with the chance for just peaceful moving forwards and for non-violence that it's just so galling and frustrating. Yes, he's got a point, but every single move he makes only makes things worse. And he knows that, and he continues to do it. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right, because you, you see the things that he's doing, and you... Again, it's... Eric is aware of things on a global, and in the case of Days of Future Past, historical scale. Mm, Cobra yeah. can only really see what's in front of his face, which he is... He has a very narrow yeah. view, yeah. So let's get off the, the whole Eric and Cobra train, because we'll, we'll come back to Cobra later on for the climax. Okay, so the central trio of humans, Malcolm, Ellie, and Alex, played by Jason Clark, Kerry Russell, and Cody Smith-McPhee. Was Cody familiar to you? The young lad. Very clean face. He looked like Jay Baruchel, but apart he from did. that... Uh, it's the kid in the road. Oh, my God. He's grown up he a bit. He's sprung up a bit. He's in a slightly less depressing world. <laughs> but he appears to be uh, duty-bound to be in dark futures. Mm. He's harnessed all of that uh, uh, on flux of misery, though. Yeah. To Jason Clark's uh, credit, I have never much enjoyed seeing him on screen in, in in film, and I was very much on board for Malcolm. Uh, it didn't take long for me to go, right, okay, this, this character's a, a, a straight shooter. He's not massively fascinating or interesting, but he has a decent fixed point in the absence of will for us to uh, uh, to relate to the apes. And he has that... Um, I love the bit where he's basically... He's, he's looking at the pistol and then just puts it back in the drawer because there's just no point. Mm, what yeah. is the point of bringing a pistol with me? If I shoot an ape that's threatening me everyone's going to die anyway. So what's the point? I think what struck me the most about him was how his uh, his driving force was very, very simple. And it was one that you rarely see in heroes. Certainly not Marky Mark. Um, <laughs> well, I wasn't going to say it. Um, <laughs> it Basically, everything he was doing... No, Marky Mark is very simple, but his driving force was complex. <laughs> Carry on. Um, everything that Malcolm was trying to achieve uh, was for the sake of his son. Yeah. And that idea of the uh, the small family unit within the larger family community was very, very strong, and it, it was reinforced by, obviously, Caesar's connection with uh, Cornelia and um, his uh, and Blue Eyes and his newborn son. And it really gave that feeling of the, the parallel worlds mm. that... Uh, what's the, the ridiculously clichéd comment that Sting did a song about do the Russians love their children or something like that? <laughs> Yes, we but, bloody do, I believe they said. Well, indeed, but it just... He said he hoped that the Russians loved their children too. Yeah, which country was it that first called for nuclear disarmament? No, unilateral nuclear disarmament? Oh, it was Russia, actually, yes. 
Oh, I, I think Russia has forfeited any right to have their boxes ticked at the moment. Yeah, okay. Um, right now, <laughs> Russia is run by a different crowd, but Gorbachev was a good egg. He, he was. He wasn't bad. Um, but yeah, anyway, to to get off politics. Look, does Vladimir Putin love his children too? Sting would like to know. Right. The significant point is not does he love his children, but do his children love him? <laughs> um, loves them as long as they're not gay lords. Well, indeed, but um, but yeah, the 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 idea of people interacting with other people with no casual death because it doesn't matter because they're henchmen or they're robots or they're uh, brown people in a foreign country or whatever reason they ascribe to their film or video game that basically means that these are not actually people. They are a detached thing that it is okay for us to off for the, in the name of action. For your amusement. The, indeed. The total absence of that blew me away and to replace that uh, that strong um, supposed strong warlike everybody can get behind this flag that we're waving because it's you know all in the name of freedom with family and community and the, the idea of supporting each other and doing things for other people and not for some uh, obscure concept of doing this for your children because you don't really give a shit about your children if if your idea of the world that you're going to pass on to your children is one in which they have to stand on the pile of dead bodies that you just massacred then you you're not really thinking about your children here you're, you're doing something to satisfy some urge within yourself and that that strong feeling of how family and and groups that all connect with each other and the even the individuals who don't connect the people who are trying to keep the network together are trying to bring those individuals in and trying desperately to include them and not just abandon them and say you don't meet the rules right exile that's the end of it carver when he transgresses all of the boundaries that Caesar's laid down and brings a shotgun into the camp I was half expecting him to be like banished like walk back to the city and if you die on the way you die on the way but no there was none of that they were you know they were cross with him they were um, very firm with him but they basically took him back to the truck and went right you stay there. You, we will take you home in a bit when we're done with what we're doing. He was treated almost like a, a, a naughty child where you, you understand why the child's done it, but you still have to mete out some sort of punishment so that they understand not to do it again. Um, and that, again, it just – there was so much that seemed to me to be real about this. was this. more like World War Z than the World War Z movie. Yes. There you go, folks. Absolutely. It, it, it had awareness of consequences genuine, and the future. Yeah. Genuine and authentic and real. And like you say, the, the fact that they have now got to the point where... Uh, the, uh, Notice CG, they weren't racing around for trying to find a cure. Well, indeed. Um, the uh, the idea... Well, they'd have to test it on apes. <laughs> really, would it? That, that could have dire consequences. Now they've become um, like the brain gremlin. <laughs> The fact that they've now got the CGI up to a level where 
realism is not in question. It's uh, the blend between CG performance and live action actor was so seamless. The one moment where it got a little bit uncanny valley for me was the baby chimp, because obviously the baby chimp does not have a baby performance capture actor. That's very true. Uh, Even with uh, baby Caesar, they had to actually have a baby uh, lying in a box because uh, Andy Serkis could not, and this is from the commentary, get into a box of that size. He tried. Um, <laughs> uh, but the scale was all wrong, so they used a baby for, for reference. Uh, and obviously with that, they can't get a baby to clamber all over a human of that size. So, um, yeah, they had to... They could have used a baby chimp. Yeah, but you can't make a baby but chimp. You, can't, too st- you can't stick dots all over a baby chimp and not expect it to eat. Some. I would imagine they uh, they examined file footage of uh, chimp, baby chimps moving all over people and then tried uh, their absolute level best to imitate that. But the, there wasn't a frame for frame reference. Yeah, but still, I mean, you compare that to the small ape-like creature that climbs all over people in Lost in Space. Blob. I was thinking of Blob. And it's it's a different. It's a different universe. Yeah. And that's what all the apes would be like if they were just using CG but didn't use performance capture. Yeah. They wouldn't have that reference. Yeah. They'd look better, but they wouldn't move better. Would they look better? As in they'd look better than Lost in Space level CG. Oh, right, yeah. Sorry. There's no way they could look better than these. They literally... No. It's it's not specifically better. It's that, what I mentioned before about the little tiny imperfections make it seem perfect. The little scars, the little wobbles, the little moments where there's an organic feel behind them. Again, just wonderful stuff. The matted fur that makes it look like yeah. a suit rather than a digital texture. Maurice, this time, when she was sit, I call her she because obviously it's a female. Uh, she's played by um, uh, Karen Conneval, the, uh, the, the woman who wouldn't let Will sign the papers. So I always kind of feel like Maurice has a female energy to her, um, to him. <laughs> the bit where Maurice was staring at uh, Alex uh, from outside the tent, just with this cu- these curious two little yellow eyes in this massive face, just crested on all sides, and um, then the, the the very gentle moving forwards, and the, the the end result of that was simply they read a comic book together. That was utterly wonderful. And that's the sort of thing that, that basically only really happens, it doesn't, that doesn't happen in blockbuster movies. It happens in things like Ghost World. It happens in, 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 in indie films. That's what we're looking for really, isn't it? Indie Small sensibilities. Things. Small things mixed with, with big budgets. With, no, small things with big premises. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. Rather than big budgets, big ideas. Yeah. Small details, big ideas. Yeah. If everything's trying to be big all the time, there's a point where you can't relate to it. It's just everyone's posturing. Everything's huge. There's explosions so often that you just become numb to it, and you yeah. you just ask, okay, right. When everything just calms the fuck down, then can we reconnect? People, yeah, the- people know this on a. On an unconscious level, people know this when they go in to see films. They say, well, you've got to switch your brain off. You shouldn't have to switch your brain off. Sometimes it's important to switch your brain off. Absolutely, I agree. There are plenty of films where you can do that. But really, with the big budgets, we don't necessarily... Like, you can switch your brain off with Ninja Assassin. 
You don't need to waste north of 250 million for a switch your brain off film. What did we see the other day that was switch your brain off that I liked? Oh, uh, talk. Talk. Yes. Talk. Yes. Switch your brain off with talk. Absolutely. That, that's, I want to start a campaign as well as Maurice, uh, who it was fantastic to see back. Rocket returned and, uh, it was touching to see how uh, connected he was to Caesar now, how loyal and how uh, he, he wouldn't dream of betraying him now, because Caesar basically showed him a better life than being the asshole he was. And that's possibly why I felt I was frustrated for Carver, because Carver... There was a moment when the uh, when Caesar Jr., the little baby chimp, was jumping around on um, uh, Ellie's knee... And he softened a little bit, almost like he was being reminded of um, uh, maybe maybe a toddler that he had a while back. And then he hardened up and got uh, angry again, and then the shotgun got found. And it's almost like there was going to be something, and then he got beaten to death by Cobra. But, you know, life is messy, and you don't get to have, have fully rounded off characters or across the ball, and you don't get to tie up every thread. I guess I, it, it was beginning to feel like Mass Effect 2, and everybody had a story, and everybody had a past, and everybody had motivations, and I wanted to find out all of them and then see them through to the end. But, but you can't always... It wasn't time. One thing it really reminded me of, actually, um, was that... When I was younger, and possibly this is to do with having more time, and when I say younger, I mean like literally 10, 11, 12 years old. I used to, um, basically anybody I saw who caught my attention for whatever reason, um, and lots of people did. I was a, very much a people watcher when I was younger. And I used to invent little stories for all the people around me. And create little interactive worlds that I couldn't possibly know anything about. And these people would have histories and they would have backstories. And and it sounds like I think some people would see it as divorcing myself from the reality of those people. But in all fairness, if I'm never going to meet them and they're actual stories are never going to become known to me it was actually a way of seeing them as people Hmm. rather than just crowds or um you know people behind tills who take your money and give you shopping or and it just it hit me that as i've got older i it's got whether it's got easier or whether it's become more of a habit to just push people that I don't directly personally interact with into this kind of background level where they're and I'm not saying that I don't actually see them as human beings I don't see them as people but just that I don't I don't feel any sense of of connection with them as I don't see any parallel between them and me. And I honestly don't think that that's because there's anything wrong with my brain and I'm not going to suddenly flip out and kill anybody or anything ridiculous like that. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. But all I mean is it, I've just, I've lost the habit of 
really seeing what lies behind the superficial conversations and the superficial interactions. And I don't know. You've taken refuge in fiction? Well, no, because it could be argued that that's what I was doing before. But this kind of reminded me that... To put it in really, really simplistic terms, that every pair of eyes I see has something behind it. I understand what you mean. The key words uh, repeated throughout a family. And um, the reason it works on this small scale is that you're dealing with a a bunch of close-knit families. And those are much easier to relate to because it's, it's simple. You don't have to get tied in with the politics that they're all beholden to. These people are separate from the rest of them. They don't know what's going on in the rest of the world. They are as clued in as Caesar and his group. They're isolated groups. And when that's the case, it becomes a very simple scenario of survival. And if both tribes want to survive and can somehow see their way clear to not murdering each other... It's better for everyone. That that really, that really is you know it's, it's it's a simple way of kind of summing up life, you know the the secret of life. If if we're going to sort of get through it, if two tribes, if not two, why not more? Just want to survive. Is it possible they cannot kill each other? And yet it manages to project this without being preachy, without going for direct allegory, uh, and just making it applicable to life. So that when that whole premise falls apart and the, the apes start charging in with their guns and, 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 and they clash, as I said before, it becomes like saving Private Ryan. You just you just kind of want it to stop. It's relentless. It's a, it's a sensory overload, but it's done in the right way as opposed to Transformers, where it's like, you want this, don't you? No, we don't. And I hate to keep comparing it to Transformers, but it's what we've been covering recently. And um, it's a nice it's a nice state of affairs when Apes comes out a few weeks after the lackluster performance of uh, Age of Extinction. It's still, you know, it, it did close to a billion, but it only did close to a billion. Ah, uh, the inevitable drop-off begins. Yeah. Thank the Lord. Some people are catching on. And uh, Apes has done extremely well. Blue Eyes, uh, who was uh, played by Nick Thurston. Again, these are all names that people won't know. You know, Nick, Nick Thurston, uh, um, uh, Terry Notary, who uh, was uh, the, the guy who played Rocket in the first one, uh, and... Um, Karen Connival as uh, Rocket and Maurice, and Judy Greer, who played Cornelia, um, Caesar's wife. She's Cheryl from Archer. And what's her name in Arrested Development? Kitty. Kitty, that's it. Yeah. I, unrecognizable. Could not have told that about Cornelia, and yet incredibly subtle, quiet performance. You were asking why the apes, uh, the, the, the midwife apes, had their faces covered? Mm-hmm. I was speculating either it was something Caesar and company remembered from watching um, surgeons in in the past that they wore masks and so it's like well it's just something that got done. Uh, however, it, it um, 
it's more likely that it was something ceremonial because uh, Cornelia was wearing a headdress, which uh, to indicate that she was the the the, the, the matriarch at the moment. And um, there, there are there are other hints that uh, with with the spears and the hunting together in packs and on horseback eventually that they're they're basically dropping into uh, advancing along the same lines as as man did. And that they're develop, developing their own culture, mm. and that these these sort of occurrences are natural. Um, but blue eyes, back to Nick Thurston. I honestly thought that at some point Caesar was going to die, and that uh, they, they'd find him because obviously when a person gets shot in the shoulder and they fall out of sight, obviously they're not dead, especially if they're a key character. And that the film goes on without them when the reintroduction of their character would ch- turn everything around again. But I thought they were going to bring him back, and then when they got him to Will's house, he might actually die, and it would be fall to Blue Eyes, who had to decide to stand up and take his father's crown and beat Simba, effectively. Mm. And that actually would still have been a really great movie. As it is they managed to delineate the difference between Caesar and Blue Eyes. That still may, by the way, happen in the third film. I have some wild speculation for what might happen there. We'll do that at the end. Uh, but uh, Thurston played it extremely quiet, extremely subtle, almost shy for a son of Caesar. He, you know, he, he could and should possibly be more boisterous, be more uh, assertive, but um, he was, he's, he's been quiet it seems for a lot of his life and um the uh, the attack from the bear at the beginning humbles him further and then all of the uh the, the the conflict he appears to not thrive on conflict and so uh again this is an introverts movie mm-hmm. this one and rise they are movies for introverts age of extinction extrovert that's not saying extroverts are worse i once believed introverts were better than extroverts but not anymore what do we do? Uh, go! Shall we shoot him? Maybe. Oh, 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 Give him some nasty wildness. <laughs> there you go. Whoa, hey. Whoa, hey, hey. Okay. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good, huh? Yeah, yeah. Oh, whoa, whoa, hey, hey, hey. Hey. Okay, all right. Easy. 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 Uh, Lyra kept pointing out the the window symbol. It turned up uh, several times in the camp before they actually got to Will's house. And uh, when the the power was restored and Caesar got to uh, watch that um, uh, video, which they very cunningly put on high eight tapes, which would have been still around in uh, 2000... It was was 2018 that uh, Caesar was... um, uh, that the uh, virus started to spread... So it's actually 2028 when this movie takes place. Uh, so Caesar would have been a, uh, a small child ape around about 2012, 2011. 
Um, so yeah, hiatal digital tapes with the that the, the little sounds they were using there would still have been around for cameras. And also, I, I remember seeing that on the train and going, "There's no way the battery would still be going." It was plugged in. That's a neat little um, mm, twist. I on noticed it. that too. Yeah. Neat little bit of uh, detail. I ha- I hate it when things happen in movies that just wouldn't fucking happen. If anybody ever finds a Zippo lighter, for example, anyone who's ever owned a Zippo lighter will tell you that if you leave that thing in in your old coat pocket or a drawer for three or four months and you come back to it, there's no lighter fluid left. It evaporated ages ago. But every time they find them in movies, click and it comes straight on. Bollocks to that. Uh, but uh, when Dreyfus finds the iPad. A wonderful moment of visual storytelling. Not a word is spoken, and Lyra was in floods because she understood exactly what was going on. She's my touchstone for how well visual storytelling is working. And she was actually getting really good at uh, reading the uh, subtitles as well. They were whipping by, but she was getting what was being said because in context it made sense. I was afraid that she'd get too overwhelmed by the action and the violence, and obviously going in not knowing what was going to happen, not knowing if Caesar would actually straight out die, I didn't want her to uh, be absolutely distraught. But, you know, it happened to a generation of kids who saw Optimus Prime die, and they had no knowing that that might happen, so uh, we didn't turn out too bad. Indeed. And again, Dreyfus didn't get the chance, much like Carver, to actually think on his uh, very determined course which is to just give everything to destroy the apes and to, to just prevent the, their chance of um, uh, destroying his family. And um, had it been played by an actor with lesser of a caliber than uh, uh, Oldman, um, or had Oldman been playing it totally loopy, which he has been prone to do at times, specifically prior usually to uh, Batman Begins, and I'm sure he could still do one, um, he would just have been a hateable, detestable character, like everyone in uh, Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Um, but uh, instead, I completely got why he felt this had to be done, why he would give his life to do it. Again, it felt like World War Z. And uh, the this brings us to the fight between Caesar and Cobra, and uh, there's not really much to say about the actual the confluence of the action itself, aside from the fact that notably at one point, did you see Caesar leapt down onto uh, Cobra in a, a death dive, like mm. something that he pretty much knew he was going to to die doing, mm. exactly the same as in in order to help and save his friends and just take down this this force that was going to doom them all otherwise buck ah yeah buck inspired him with his actions and when he states uh cobra states caesar weak and caesar retorts cobra weaker this comes down to the fact that um cobra has no friends cobra has no confidence and and caesar really knows this uh, he, he doesn't, um, have a cell of, uh, of operatives. He doesn't have a system in place, even just professionally to remain where he is. He doesn't have the strength to stay in on his teetering pedestal. Caesar knows that he is loved, which gives him the strength it takes to win. Kind of like Rocky. 
Yeah. Well, it, it comes back to the, the apes alone weak, apes together strong. And his, his symbol for family, I don't know if that is, uh, accurate to the ASL sign for family, but the way he does the, the two thumb and forefinger together and move them apart before doing the gesture for all together, that almost That's looks accurate. like, okay, well that looked to me like the gesture he made when he was, um, holding the sticks to show Maurice what he meant about apes together strong. Yeah. Well, he would back then have known the, the, uh, the sign for family and so would Maurice. Yeah, very true. Yeah. Because that's the thing. That's the reason Caesar didn't leave in the uh, cages in the original uh, Rise. He saw a family. He saw the potential for people like him. And I use the term people here. Which is why, show of force, which is why he rode them all into town to just threaten the humans, which is why he would have to remain strong. He has to actually perform these leadership duties. He can't just ponder and think and ruminate and hope for peace. I loved his uh, comment about apes look for the strongest branch. Yeah. See, that's the thing that if he if he's thinking in metaphors and he's thinking in allegory, then the next step is stories. And that's the point at which a uh I think this this concept of the transition from animal state to human state or animalistic state to to human state is where you have the concept of something that is bigger than you and bigger than your group and bigger than your community and will carry on into the future beyond you and all your children being dead. And if you have stories, then you've got a history. And if you've got a history, then you're eternal. When Cobra dies... There was just enough of a breakfall as he went down for, for them to possibly bring him back for the third, which got me thinking, uh, how the hell can they follow this up? There's, if we're looking into the distant future of a, a Charlton Heston type getting out of this new version of Icarus into a planet of the apes, there's really only one way this can go, which is that apes continue to evolve continue to culturally uh, move forward and expand outwards and uh, man devolves. Something may happen that basically makes men into simpletons. Mm. Uh, and uh, that's actually a really depressing way to end a trilogy. I originally um, compared this loosely to the two towers before seeing it, but now it really feels like um, this, this was an exact a perfect example midpoint of what Weta did with the two towers and making it really character based, making it really drama based and tension based uh, with, uh, with a, a war where you don't want people to get horribly hurt. Um, and then sort of, you know, this is uh, the, the battle for Helm's Deep is over. The battle for Middle Earth is just beginning. And so what do you think could happen? I think, it depends how many more they want to do. In all seriousness, if the next one is going to be the last one, I would be tempted to move past Caesar because we've seen him fall. It would be very difficult to see him fall again 
in a way that isn't repeating yourself. So if you move on to the next generation, have Caesar relatively long dead and blue eyes leading. Yeah. Um, and, and look at what they do next. Look at what happens when you have a generation of apes for whom human rule is starting to pass out of living memory. Because that's a key step in the treatment of the humans starting to get to what you had in the original Heston movie. It's not just that the humans have to become less smart. The apes have to forget that one time they were more intelligent and more dominant than they are now. Also, one of the things that held back uh, the original Planet of the Apes was the the rather ham-fisted stab at religion. Uh, the, the whole idea that this religious doctrine prevents the scientific discovery and uh, historical uncovering of what happened before. And the, mm. the, the priests going, no, you must not look, you must not think. And, uh, you know, we've, we've got plenty of things which can make ham-fisted stabs at religion nowadays. But that prevented us from really seeing any kind of advanced ape society. Well, so, so if they're going to introduce that again in this, it's going to actually be uh, not very subtle. Yeah, well, that's the difficulty with allegory, isn't it? Because if we move on to the point where the apes are starting to show all of what we would consider to be human flaws and foibles... They're going to come across religion. They can't not, really. No. That's what man, tribal man did. You you don't immediately jump to to being atheists if that is the the most advanced uh, state of mind on the planet. You'd have to... Well... I think if you if you bear in mind that early I'm not saying it is by the way folks early religion don't want to piss off any kind atheists. of an attempt to make sense of what is not yet understood mm-hmm. magic is basically just the things we don't understand yet um and again the apes that have a a, a memory of what it was like living under, if you like, humans, the apes who remember technology, the apes who remember um, scientific constructions and things, even if they don't have a full understanding of how it worked, they would at least not think of it as magic. And there's no reason for them to to take that route. I've but then you're then you're getting into do, into um, unscrupulous leaders doing what Cobra did and basically lying to them in order to keep them under control. Yeah, you're going to get to the Roman stage. I mean that that is Which once is you get the past, Tim Burton version. Yeah, once you get past the idea of uh, attempting to explain the inexplainable, religion becomes a very efficient stick with which to beat the masses. Yeah. What they, one thing they did remove from this film, there was going to be a post-credit sting where, which is even like the, the music is present on the soundtrack where a giant battleship comes under the uh, San Francisco bridge and uh, closes in on them. But they decided to remove that because that boxes them in. I, well, I, for a start, they're going to be foolhardy if they get rid of Andy Serkis. Just because Caesar's not there doesn't mean that, uh, uh, Serkis doesn't need to be there. Um, Roddy McDowell carried on long after the death of Cornelius. Ergo, uh, you could have Caesar V 
if you do want to just... I mean, because ultimately, what can it really be? There's two things that can happen, basically. Either the apes win, in which case mankind is doomed and it's a miserable, gloomy ending, or the humans win and the apes are doomed and it goes back to not being Planet of the Apes. Or more apes turn up and it's ah this is a bigger thing than you thought it's uh, it is actually a plant of the apes the african apes have somehow become seafaring and then you're starting to stretch that realism that you were they were trying to go for mm-hmm. so really when it comes down to it to if you're going to keep it realistic and you're going to keep moving forwards and you're actually going to approach how the original 68 planet of the apes presented itself Humans have to start dying out in some way that isn't utterly depressing. Or it needs to have moved forward to the point where you're like, okay, humans are now becoming an endangered species, and the apes are trying to keep them alive. Featuring Caesar the Fifth, played by Andy Serkis. Mm. I don't know. But I do like the fact that uh, at the end of our apes podcast, eight down the line, we're back to square one again. As in, how do we get to Charlton Heston? One of the uh, the uh, most appealing factors about this is its its looping state of uh, time. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Well, we know that if they're going to get back to that point, they have to get to New York. But uh, but yeah, the apes are going to have to start spreading, heading east in effigy of uh, the uh, great <gasps> west. Oh, God, That's their yes. wild east. Oh, good lord! Colonizing. Yeah. Spreading across the, uh... yeah, which is why, really, if we rejoin it several uh, decades or even a couple of hundred years from now, uh, when um, things are very different, then again, people are very much engaged with what this is, and they that may be the sort of thing that can happen in another trilogy that follows after this one. Maybe this, the whole point of this is the Caesar dynasty, and that the film three will close that one out. He will die, and we will um, have to deal with that. And and then that was his epic Caesar trilogy, and then they can move on with the future for the series. Because really, why stop it there at this point with, you know, a sort of a cliffhanger for uh, what's the, what's going to happen at the end of the story? Well, some stuff happened, but let's move on. If you remember, that's pretty much what they did with Battle of the Planet of the Apes. They went, some stuff happened, it's not even clear what year this is, let's move on. Yet Caesar's still around. Yet this guy whose brother worked uh, in uh, the the government is still around. Yet a city of indeterminate name is still populated by mutants with scarred faces. Yet the apes are talking, wearing clothes. There's one ape who won't shut up, named Virgil. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. But these do. And that's one of the many, many reasons I love them. So, yeah, I think we've got a, a, a really excellent and unexpected new trilogy emerging here. And the first one to not concern superheroes for quite some time. This occurred to me after I'd written all these notes. This film starts with Caesar's eyes very, very close up on them. And he's in the jungle and he's, uh, sorry, the forest. And he's uh, staring down at the, uh, what we find out shortly afterwards, at the elk. And um, it just sort of pulls out slowly, slowly from these incredibly intense eyes. And he's got this face paint on, which I don't know whether it's inadvertent or purposeful. Um, he's made his face skeletal. And he even has like sort of rib bones um, striped across his chest. And uh, he's made himself into this specter of something that would be very frightening to a human. Um, and it slowly pans out. And then he sends his apes on and they hunt the elk. And then it closes 
on his eyes and he's staring forwards into the camera ruminating on everything that's happened throughout the film thinking about what's about to happen and um, all of that massive mixture of emotion it's kind of like the end of um, uh, The Long Good Friday with an ape and it reminded me of the beginning of Rise where you zoom in to Bright Eye's eyes just as she's been captured and taken away from her jungle home and it zooms out and her iris has changed and they go green and she's suddenly uh, intelligent very intelligent and very sad and then that's her story there and um, there's just many times when it just focuses on the eyes of Caesar. It doesn't end on his eyes uh, rise, but these... Again, it's the eyes. And um, this is one of the things that I find so difficult about writing, Sharon. Mm-hmm. I keep describing people's eyes because I am such a visual storyteller. I can't say over and over again he looked incredibly intense you know she could see in his eyes that blah 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 blah. if i keep talking about the eyes it seems like a, a crutch i'm leaning on but if you show it subtly in a film it's like you don't have to say those things because they're all open to interpretation one person could see that ape's eyes and not see anything at all or you could see tons that's what i love about visual storytelling that's what i love about the screen Part of what took me by surprise with Cobra was his incredible cunning when he was uh, in a very sticky situation in the uh, in, in the armory, and the, yeah, the guy's got his gun trained on him, and and there's just this sort of oh my god, what's he going to do? How is he going to to, to 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 basically somehow turn the tables and kill this guy? Because it, that's the murder was all over his face, and then he just goes into Clyde mode. Did people laugh at that stage? You're supposed to. They did, yeah, but it, I think in a, a way that, as you say, you're intended to. Yeah. It, it's a breaking of the tension for the guys sat there as well as um, as for the audience. Yeah. It's it's also kind of well the the clever balls on this guy moment, and uh, to then realise that that intellect and that reasoning and that cunning is now being pitted against Caesar ups the tension even more and it's like oh that relieves the tension oh wait a second the tension's now back so yeah extremely well managed and uh thankfully matt reeves will be directing this next one excellent yeah and again this is a fox movie and i've got to hand it to them right now they've managed to churn out uh uh, several x-men films and apes films without meddling I don't know what new management they went through since X-Men Origins Wolverine, but uh, it was enough to basically get them to go back to the drawing board and and, uh, and go, right, are we able to just let filmmakers be filmmakers? And of course it goes without saying that in a few years' time, 2016, we will be reviewing War of the Planet of the Apes, or whatever it's called. Okay, that will do it from us. Coming up in the next few weeks, the run-up to the 30th episode of Digital Drift, which will be my 400th podcast, and it's The Iron Giant. And in the meantime, Guardians of the Galaxy. We will see you in a week's time. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Neural, Neural Handshake, handshake complete. complete.
Jim Pantry Dive. Okay, now that surely cannot be fair on anyone's ears listening. <laughs> right, um, ages ago, right, about about the 1950s. Oh yeah, oh yeah. There was this gangster knocking about, and do you know, how, like, were they called Hairy Fingers? Do you know, how, like, a lot of gangsters like <laughs> to get into gambling and that. Yeah, yeah. And. uh you know, like all these, all these peers and that, all these, all these mates who are like gangsters and stuff. Mm. They've all bought horses, right? That like they take, you know, take racing and they make money from them. And that don't. Yeah. They? Mm. So anyway, he and was chuckles. Like, Seagull was no different. And and he was like, yeah, that's uh, that's a good thing to get into. I might might get into a bit of that, right? So he gets himself this horse, right? And it, there's a big race coming up, that's why he's sort of, he's a bit of a last minute. And the, and the jockey turns up and it's fine, he's a human jockey and it's fine. Excellent, okay, well that was another so, podcast. So anyway, so um, please listen oh, to there's more, there's more. Oh, go on, on. So, oh. so anyway, so, uh, this big race is coming up, he's, yeah. he's like, I've got to be involved in this yeah, because definitely. I can make a lot of money out of me also. Choose the jockey wisely then. So he says to his, like, mate, he said, look, uh, I've got myself a horse and that. He said, we just need a jockey, get someone, oh, yeah. sort it out, and yeah. what have you, so I can get in this race. So, yeah, the jockey so club. His mate's like, yeah, alright, I'll, I'll have a word and that, have a look round and that, see if there's anyone decent. And there's, the, the good there. thing about jockeys is there's never been a shortage of jockeys, because a lot of them don't make the grade. So there's, there's, there's always too many jockeys to go round. Normally always too many human jockeys. Yeah, yeah, there's, you, there's never a problem getting jockeys. Fine. Go on. So anyway, so... Was that true in the fifties as well? Absolutely, it's always been it's true. It's always been true, it's always, it's always been true. There's no, there's no lack of jockeys. So... It's sort of close shot, people are trying to do it and they don't make the grade, so... But in the 50s, from your knowledge, there was never, there was not, like, in 1951, a shortage of jockeys for just one year? Absolutely never. I've known about <laughs> okay, that. Fine, I'm you, quite yeah. keen. Right. Go on. So anyway, right, so his mate says, look, I'm having a problem getting a jockey. Seems oh, odd, because no, Ricky's just weird. been saying... He's just been saying there's not a problem. What do you mean? So... Just because the main problem was... Go on. A lot of jockeys were aware of this gangster and were saying, I'm not getting involved with this guy. The chances are, I won't get paid... You know, is a gangster. It's not no, worth it. No, you would do it if it was a gangster asking you. You'd be scared of the consequences. So anyway, he's saying, look, don't be coming to me with problems and that, right? I've got the horse. I want it in the race. Sort it out. So they're like, oh, but boss. And he's like, don't give me any of that. Exactly. They do what he says, so any jockey would do it. Go on. So anyway, so the day before. The big race, yeah. <laughs> left it to the last minute. Okay, but yeah. fine. <laughs> and, uh... He says, have you, have you got a jockey then? They're like, yeah, but, and he's going, D don't worry about it, have you got a jockey? Yeah, but, and he's like, well, look. He wants what, to what? say, sure, he wa yeah. So, yeah, uh, yeah. he's saying, has he ridden their horses before and that? He said, well, yeah, he has, but mainly, and he's like, oh, brilliant. And he goes, yeah, but mainly in like a in circus. In the, in the jung. No, like in, in, the, in the circus and that. <gasps> it worked, it, it worked with horses and stuff. In the circus. It's fine. Yeah. So he's yeah, like, that's, fine. that's enough. That's, that's all I need to know. Well, they'd be too heavy because circus. So People so are quite built, aren't they? They're, they're he said a bit so heavier than the jockey, because the jockeys are about eight and a half stone. He said, brilliant. Get him down there and that, right? Yeah. Anyway, the race happens. He didn't want to meet him beforehand? He wasn't worried no about point, it? No point. Not bothered. No. As far as he's concerned, he's, it's put all his, sorted. he's putting his money on it and what have you. Yeah. Right? Sure. What happened is they were trying to make him put on the jo jockey outfit. Yeah. But for some reason it didn't fit that well. Sleeves too was, short, legs too long. It's that sort of problem. Okay. So they let him, like, you know, wear his stuff that he wore... In the circus and that, because it's, it's, it's comfortable with that, yeah, he's happy yeah. with it, do you know yeah, what I mean? That's what he's happy with. Yeah. Anyway, race starts and what have you. Uh, this horse, straight out of the trap and that, high speed, right? This, this jockey's got a really big grin on his face, he's loving it, right? Everyone's cheering, going, who is this? Who's this jockey here? Yeah. It's amazing, never seen him before, and yet, look at him. But they can see his face, clearly. Anyway, gangster's happy in that, because he's, he's won. But I just want to say the crowd, the crowd can see the jockey, can they? What? 
the crowd can do. I mean, it's, it's yeah, but it's so fast. And what <laughs> have the you. blur, it's a blur. It's all a blur. It's right? really, he's good at it. I mean, apparently right. he was close to falling off, and people were like, he's, he's gone. He's a goner. Right. He's got such a good reach that he managed to grab hold. Oh, of the sure. reach. Oh. And nice. well, they could tell he was smiling. They could tell he was smiling, but they couldn't see the, the detail of his face. Is that right? Just well, to clarify it's just, that. It's just blur and that. Sure, but they could tell he was smiling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, they knew he was happy. At the end of it, do you know, like the winner sort of rides around the crowd, but yeah, sort of you know show off and what have you. Yeah. And all the women are there, and you know, like women are all dolled up at these events. Sure, they've yeah. all got big, big hats on. Uh, Sometimes they got through all those hats. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And one, one of the women, In one the of the women, oh Carmen Miranda was very yeah, popular. Yeah, yeah. One of the women had like, like you say, fruit and what have you on it, yeah. a little, little banana. Oh, right, some kind of cube. They're, they're not real though, the hats though. They're, 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 <laughs> they're not real fruit, is it? Of course not. Never. So it, but so I don't know who, well, I thought they wore those sort of kind of Cuban yeah, entertainment even, shows. I didn't realise they wore them yeah, at events. Even if it's like a big event, you know, you might have a hat with fruit and it, it's sort of joke, but, it, but it's, it's fake fruit because it would, it would, it would perish. Well, this, this jockey didn't understand that. He'd never seen false fruit. I don't understand. But what? why did the, why did the jockey suddenly? Why was he so desperate for fruit? I don't, I don't understand. understand. So anyway, so meanwhile, the gangster's collecting his five hundred quid winnings. Yeah. Right? He's over the moon. Yeah. He kicks off because of this woman with the fruit. Yeah, I don't understand. I still don't understand no, where the jockey would go. Everyone from. noticed jockey, little monkey fella. Oh, that makes sense. If he was a monkey, that would make sense. Yeah. What year was this? Cause I wanna it was it up. was nineteen fifties, and that's where the saying comes from about do you know, like in Cockney slang, five hundred quid is a monkey. He, he sort of put, you know, he put a monkey on it, and it all goes back to the time so when. So this happened in this in in, in England. In this country, yeah, yeah in England. So someone could well still be alive so, that we could easily yeah. contact. That well, would that's it. We that always, you know, there's no time length on this monkey news. If you've got any, if it's history, you know, if yeah. it goes back, or know, if it's made up, just just send it in. If it's so, bollocks, uh, if you've got any bollocks, if it's actually bollocks, send please in. send it in. That's this week's monkey news. RickyGervais.com. Time at work. My 